So we're going to read from Acts chapter 24 today. Paul's trial before Felix. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in, uh, joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to, con to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I will gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Uh, now, it's a probably a good moment to 
remind us, uh, or two, if you're coming for the first time, that uh, we do uh, like to have a question time after. Uh, so if there's anything that comes up as we go through, I won't get to everything in depth. Uh, so if you've got a question, do uh, hold that with you until we get to question time. You can text it into the number on the screen. That'll come up again, and that way you can stay anonymous. Uh, or you can just pop up your hand, and Hannah will come around with a mic when we get there. Uh, but let's get into this wonderful passage. Um, now, uh, I'm about to put a face up on the screen, a face you might recognise. He was, was quite prominent in the news uh, about October last year. Uh, if you don't recognise him, his name is Andrew Thorburn. Uh, and he was a big news story for about a week. Uh, and he was a big story uh, because about 24 hours after he was appointed as the CEO of uh, the Essendon Football Club, that's an AFL club, uh, he was forced to resign. Uh, but he was forced to resign not because, uh, you know, drugs or uh, immorality or, or something like that that we normally hear. Uh, it was because he was the chairman of the board in a church. A church that believed much the same things that we do. Uh, and for many, that was intolerable. After they announced him for the job, uh, people figured out uh, that he belonged to this church. They sort of uh, trawled through the church's past sermons. Uh, and, and as they did, they found a couple of ones that they found controversial. One, one sermon uh, about marriage being exclusively between a male and female. Uh, another talked about uh, protecting the rights of the unborn uh, when it comes to abortion. Uh, and when the media grabbed hold of these little snippets, uh, their outcry was so great uh, that the club reacted quickly and they had him resign. Um, now, uh, I think pretty telling in the public perception is how Dan Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, commented on it. Uh, this is what he said. This is a quote. He said, those views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred. Bigotry is just wrong. All of you know my views on these things. Those sorts of attitudes are simply wrong, and to dress that up as anything other than bigotry is just obviously false. Uh, and it's in that light that Andrew Thorburn was painted in the media as an intolerant bigot. Uh, now keep in mind, as we say that, that he was forced out not because of anything he said or did. Uh, it had nothing to do with his track record. He'd been a CEO of a, a couple of major banks. But it was simply because he belonged to a mainstream evangelical church, of which he was the chairman of the board. Um, uh, and though I think most of us, none of us really have seen, uh, have been so directly discriminated against for being a Christian, perhaps uh, as you see stories like this one, you've seen a tone coming across about Bible-believing Christians in the media, a tone that says that we're too extreme, that our beliefs are beyond regular Christianity and out of touch with modern society. And so we're irrelevant to be pushed aside and ignored. And I think it feels like a very modern problem. Certainly, it seems to be a change in my lifetime in the last 20 or 30 years. But tonight, I actually want to suggest that this isn't a new problem at all. In fact, in tonight's passage, we'll see a public trial against Paul that throws some very similar accusations against Paul. Uh, so we're going to see those accusations. That'll be our first point. 
uh, that they make against him. Uh, Next we'll see how Paul responds. Uh, And then we'll pause after that to kind of look at those accusations. How do they apply to us today? Uh, And lastly, we're going to look uh, at a little private conversation that happens at the end of the passage, uh, which shows us just how relevant Christianity was both then and still is today. Uh, And so let me pray uh, as we head off on this path. Uh, Lord, we want to recognize that there is a growing hostility to Christianity here in Australia. Uh, And as we look at this passage, uh, we recognize that same hostility. And so, Lord, as we explore it, uh, help me to speak truthfully. Uh, Help us to understand more of you and what you want for us in this world. Uh, We pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, So we get first stuck into these accusations. Uh, This trial comes, it's the second uh, in what will be a series of trials. There'll be another one that we'll see next week. Uh, Last week we saw it was more of an informal trial. Paul was stood in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. uh, And it was a trial that ended up out of control with with the Jewish leaders ready to tear Paul apart. uh, Only being rescued by the Romans stepping in. Uh, And they shipped him off to this next place in Caesarea uh, where he's now in front of the Roman governor Felix. Uh, And this week where it uh, was informal, last week it's formal. This is a proper Roman trial. And so the Jews, led by high priest Ananias, uh, they come with a lawyer, uh, a guy named Tertullus, to make their case. Uh, And this guy, we can see he's a lawyer, he goes through the normal kind of paces that a a lawyer would in this kind of trial. Uh, He starts uh, by trying to earn the goodwill of the governor in his opening little uh, line. You you might have heard it, noticed it as Anna read. Let's have a look at it from verse 2. We read, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Uh, so this lawyer, Tertullus, uh, works hard to win Governor Felix Goodwill. You can see it's kind of lathered on there, isn't it, this flattery. Uh, and it's particularly noticeable when we look at history and we find out what kind of a man Felix was. Now, Felix was known for his violence uh, when it came to handling unrest in the city. Uh, and so where P- Tertullus is describing a peace under Felix... Uh, In reality, he had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned himself the horror rather than the thanks from the Jewish population. Uh, Which I guess, if looked at from a certain angle, is a kind of peace, uh, a kind of a very violently won peace. And ultimately for Felix, uh, his violence resulted in him being recalled to Rome uh, under indictment because of his brutal intervention in a riot between Jews and Gentiles in that city, in Caesarea. Uh, and when uh, that happened, he was prosecuted, the Jews complained, and he was brought back to Rome, uh, relieved of his position. Um, uh, we'll see that later, that that's why in two years' time after Paul's arrived, he leaves and is replaced uh, by a bloke named Festus. But I think perhaps the big reason why Tertullus makes uh, note of the peace that they've enjoyed under Governor Felix uh, is to highlight the lack of peace that he accuses Paul of bringing uh, to the world. Uh, In in all, the lawyer makes three accusations against Paul, uh, and we find them there in verses 5 to 8. So let's uh, look through them. 
we read, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him you uh, yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. So there's three accusations in there. I don't know if you notice them. The first one is that he's a troublemaker. Uh, the second, he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Uh, and the third, that he attempted to desecrate the temple. Um, now, I think this lawyer is being quite deliberate in choosing these accusations. Uh, and they're a fairly, a fairly solid attempt to paint Paul in a, in a really poor light. Of course, that's what they're going for. Uh, and so we'll quickly look through each one in turn uh, and see what what's going on, what they're getting at. And the first accusation there, that he's a troublemaker. He's stirring up riots and he's doing it amongst Jews all over the world. Um, now the lawyer is cleverly trying to make the point that Paul is against the peace that Governor Felix uh, is charged with protecting and, and so zealously enforcing. Remember that overly flattering introduction where he referenced the long years of peace they'd had under Felix? Well, the lawyer is trying to tell us uh, that Paul is the enemy of that peace, that he's going to try and disrupt it. Uh, and though it doesn't quite hold water, as we'll see when we get to Paul's rebuttal, there is a ring of truth to it. As we read through Paul's missionary journeys, as we read, make our way through Acts, and as Paul goes from city to city we find that a lack of peace does follow Paul like a bad smell. Town after town, city after city, there are riots and disturbances of peace in Paul's wake. Uh, and so you can see why this is their first accusation, a serious accusation for them to level against him. The second is that he's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. Uh, the implication there is that this, is, this sect uh, of Christianity is a dangerous offshoot of the mainstream. And particularly, by calling it the Nazarene sect, they're pointing to the person of Jesus. He's the Nazarene, a man who tr was tried and sentenced to death by the Romans. Uh, uh, the lawyer doesn't want Felix to miss that association. Jesus was guilty. Hey, look at Paul. He's part of it. Uh, lastly, he brings the accusation that Paul was intent on desecrating the temple. Um, you'll notice that's an attempt rather than he actually did, so much harder to disprove um, uh, than if he had actually desecrated it. Uh, and here, uh, the Jews paint themselves as the heroes who intervened uh, to stop him from desecrating it. Uh, in fact, you'll notice there's a, a little footnote at the bottom of your page uh, that probably wasn't in the original text, but in it it fleshes out that they, they actually blame the Roman commander who we saw last week uh, as, as intervening and, and kind of getting in the way. Uh, and, and they try to lay blame on him. Uh, whether that happened or not, uh, we can see the Jews kind of uh, saying they were the heroes. They stopped Paul, this menace, from desecrating the temple, which was their right uh, as the religious leaders. Uh, and of course, none of this resembles what we actually read happened. Uh, so they're, they're talking, when they're talking about desecrating the temple, about the story that we read in chapter 21. Uh, so I'll just read a few verses from it so you can see the reality of what happened compared to what they're accusing Paul of. Uh, so it's from 21, starting at 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. 
And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus and the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole crowd was aroused and, then, and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commanders and his soldiers, his commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And so it's not quite the same story as what the Jews presented, is it? They're not quite the heroes who intervene. Uh, rather than intervening in Paul's attempt to desecrate the temple, we read that he just happened to be there. And so they dragged him out to kill him. He was in peace and they were the riot. Uh, and it was all based on wild speculation. Uh, so there's the three accusations. Uh, when Tertullus finishes, the others, other Jews jump in and say, yeah, we, uh, we agree, we assert that truth. Uh, and to me, as we read through those accusations, it's fairly clear that the accusing Jews are far less interested in getting to the truth of things. For them, this isn't a trial to, to get to the bottom of it, uh, to find the truth, to find out whether he's innocent or guilty. Uh, this is a trial where they're going to do everything they can uh, to have him declared guilty, uh, whether he is or not. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, of board game night with me and Kirst. Uh, something you may not know about us, Kirst is my wife, is that she's very competitive and so am I. Uh, and so when we play games against each other, very quickly it descends into win at all costs. Uh, that, that's the Jews here. They, they just want to win. They don't care about truth. They don't care about the law, uh, which is surprising as the Jewish leaders. All they care about is seeing Paul condemned. Uh, and that leads us to our second point, Paul's response, uh, which begins in verse 10. Uh, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I will gladly make my defence. And this is Paul doing that opening thing, just like Turtles did. Uh, you can see his is much less cringeworthy and over-the-top flattering. A uh, simple statement of fact. Uh, and then he cuts to it. And he gets to work refuting uh, the first of the accusations made against him, that he's a troublemaker, an enemy of the peace. Uh, so listen to what he says in, in his defense. From verse 11, he says, You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accuser did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. They cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. He argues that the allegations that he was a troublemaker, for, he argues against the allegations that he was a troublemaker, uh, first by pointing out that this is recent history. Uh, they don't have to dig, in, dig through years of, of witnesses. It's 12 days ago that he arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, they can check, they can talk to people in the city and find out the truth of things. And when he got there, it wasn't to stir up trouble. Uh, they didn't find him arguing in the temple, he wasn't rallying a crowd. Uh, he was quite simply attending the temple. Uh, and as we saw before, as we looked back at chapter 21, it was the Jews who whipped the crowd up into a frenzy and attempted to kill him. Now, Paul doesn't address uh, the accusation that, that this has been a pattern of behavior all over the world. Uh, really, it's a wild accusation. It's not easily proved or disproved. 
Uh, but he speaks clearly about what happened in Jerusalem just a few days before. Uh, so they can check, and, and as they find him innocent there, they'll see the, the truth that it's uh, not been him stirring up trouble across the world. Uh, and then Paul moves on to the next accusation. Uh, and as he comes to the next one, he does something interesting. Uh, he, he agrees with them, sort of. Uh, have a look, verse 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. He has no trouble admitting that he, like they accuse him of, is part of Christianity. Uh, he doesn't use the, the term Nazarene sect. Uh, he says he's a follower of the way. Uh, but he, he labels himself as that, uh, so he has a chance to argue that Christianity isn't a crazy offshoot uh, that, that they're trying to present him as being. Uh, not only is he part of this group, but he wants to tell them that this group, Christianity, is 100% in line with everything they know from the Old Testament, all the laws and the prophets, as they call it. Uh, and then he works through some of the key points that show just that. Uh, he again points to the resurrection. We won't uh, get stuck into that now because we spent so long on it last week. Uh, but the resurrection is a key part of the gospel, of the Jewish belief. Now, the Sadducees didn't agree with it, but the Pharisees and, and in general the Jews did uh, see resurrection as a key uh, theology. Uh, he then points out uh, that he came to make an offering along with the gifts for the poor. In other words, he came to give money to the Jews. Uh, he was very much pro-Jewish. Uh, and finally, he points out that he had made himself ceremonially clean. Uh, and so far from being in a strange sect at odds with the Jews, uh, he makes it clear that he fit right in. Uh, as other parts of the Bible make perfectly clear, Christianity is not an offshoot. It's the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. It is God's plan seen through. It's the hope that the Jewish leaders profess to be looking forward to, though, of course, we, we see that they've missed it. And lastly, he defends the, the third, against the third accusation, that he intended to desecrate the temple. And he addresses that in verse 19. He says, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges uh, if they have anything against me. Uh, and, and Paul's really simply saying, if they've got accusation, if there are witnesses who saw this, where are they? Why aren't they here? Uh, and it's really key uh, in a Roman court because it was vital, I guess, like today, that if you have a witness, that they, they be there, that they're present. If you're going to throw that accusation, make sure you've got the evidence to back it up. Uh, so this would have been quite damning for the Jewish leaders to, to make this accusation and have Paul point out, there's no witnesses. If there really were witnesses, why aren't they here? Uh, and so that charge has no merit. Uh, so finally, yeah. Uh, so they're, they're not there. Uh, uh, the Jews at the centre of this uproar haven't made it there. Uh, and so there's no, no merit to that charge. Uh, and so again, it, it makes clear for us that this isn't the Jewish leaders trying to find the truth. It's them simply trying to find a way to get rid of Paul. And, and so Paul refutes all of the charges. Uh, and one of the interesting things about this trial is that we don't really get a satisfying conclusion. Uh, 
we see, so from verse 22, uh, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Lysias, we, we don't know if he ever came. Uh, we don't ever get a, a concrete, I've decided Paul's innocent or guilty. It just kind of drags away. For two years, we find out he's locked up and, and nothing really happens. Uh, though I think it seems pretty clear that Paul has refuted all the charges against him. The governor just leads him in custody. Uh, and so it seems much less about justice that he's still there. It's, it's not because he's concerned about making a difficult decision. Uh, we read that it's because he's hoping for a bribe. And so he leaves Paul in custody, hoping that bribe will come. Uh, and so he's there for two whole years, right through until he's replaced, uh, which is when he's recalled to Rome, as I mentioned at the start. Uh, and even though after two years, uh, it's clear the charges haven't stuck, Felix leaves him in custody as he departs because he wants to curry favour with the Jews. Uh, so lots of political movements going on there. Uh, and it's a really anticlimactic end, isn't it? It kind of leaves us dissatisfied. I, I, uh, it reminds me of a time I used to play rugby many years ago. Uh, I wasn't particularly good. Uh, I had a lot of fun, though. I played in the subbies comp uh, down in the fourth grade. Now, if you're not familiar with that, it's think of this is the, the place where you play if you want to have fun rather than uh, if you're going to be super competitive. That was me. Uh, that's okay. I did have a lot of fun. But I do remember one year our team did really, really well. We actually went through the whole season undefeated, all the way through the grand final. Uh, and so we played in the grand final after this incredible season, and we drew. It was a tie. I think it was five all. Uh, and because we were a lower grade and they had to move on to the upper grades, there was no time for extra time. And so that was it. It just stopped. Draw. Uh, and it was just the most unsatisfactory, unsatisfying end to a season you can imagine. And I remember us all kind of walking around in a bit of a daze, a bit confused. Uh, we couldn't celebrate because we hadn't won, but it wasn't so disappointing as having lost. We went undefeated all the way through the season, but we still weren't the champions. It was just this anticlimactic kind of horrible end. Uh, and I wonder if that's how Paul felt at this moment. As he's stuck in, in uh, locked up under arrest for another two years after this trial with no real conclusion. He didn't lose, but, but he certainly didn't win. Uh, I wonder if that's how he's feeling. Uh, and so it makes us ask the question, why is this here? What can we learn from this very anticlimactic story? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, I think the first one is it's another reminder of the nature of how we can expect things to go as Christians. Uh, again, we see as Christians, we won't always be treated fairly. Uh, we shouldn't have that expectation. We will have baseless accusations thrown against us uh, that won't seem to go away, e even if we prove them wrong. Uh, this is what we should expect. Uh, in fact, like I, I, I said at the start, I think that those first two accusations that get thrown at Paul uh, are accusations we still see today. I, I think they're roughly what Andrew Thorburn was accused of last year. Uh, a troublemaker disturbing the peace, a member of a dangerous sect. 
And I think accusations like that are going to keep coming for us Christians. We will be accused of being enemies of the peace, uh, no matter how we act. Lots of people won't see us as anything but a hate group. No, wonder the way we, no, no matter the way we interact with the community. Uh, it's become quite common, uh, I certainly think, as I've read through different news articles, to think of Christians who take the Bible seriously as extremists, out of touch with what Christianity is all about, out of touch with the world and its values. I think Paul helps us think about both those accusations. When it comes to being a troublemakers, enemies of the peace, well, he's here to nudge us to make sure that we're not. Paul's goal was never to stir up trouble, and he, he didn't in that sense. His goal was to proclaim Jesus. Now, as we do that, that will sometimes stir up trouble. But it can never be our goal. That's not what we're here for. We want to be careful to be blameless in the way that we deal with people. So that when the accusations come, the only offensive thing people find is the gospel rather than us. I think this passage also reminds us not to listen to the accusations that we're extremists, that we're a dangerous sect. Being people who believe the Bible is, is not a new idea. We can trace it through thousands of years of history. There's nothing new about that. And it's not extreme. It's simply Christianity as it's supposed to be. Uh, and I think the final thing to say about it is that though it's thousands of years old uh, and it's no less relevant today than it was that, that it's no less relevant today than it was for Paul 2,000 years ago. Uh, and I think we see that as we come to our last point uh, of this private conversation. Uh, so we're going to finish off by zooming in on that. Uh, uh, so rather than a public trial, we, we see that Paul ends up in this private conversation with Felix and his wife Drusilla after the trial. Uh, so from verse 24, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Uh, he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now, isn't that remarkable that uh, after the trial, Paul was able to have this sit-down with the Roman governor? Uh, where he spoke about faith in Jesus. Here's Paul under arrest, his life in the hands of this governor, uh, an incredibly powerful man who, who really can give Paul the death sentence if he wants to, and they sit down to talk Christianity. If it was you, what would you say? Where would you put your focus? You might be tempted to sugarcoat it, might you? Or, or not sugarcoat, but, but head towards the positives. Show Felix the, the wonderful things about being a Christian. And try and win him over to the situation he's in. Well, what do we see Paul talk about? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He picks the fun parts, doesn't he? Uh, from what we know about Felix, there'd be some sensitivities around these topics. Righteousness. We've already talked about just how violent a man Felix was. The Roman world wasn't a meek and gentle place. So how violent must Felix have been to be recalled to Rome? Uh, I suspect he would have had trouble ticking the righteous box. And then we get to self-control. 
Uh, let me give you a little bit more history about Felix. Uh, we know that Drusilla, uh, the wife here in this passage, is not his first wife. Uh, rather, she is his third wife. Dr- Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa, uh, the first, uh, Herod Agrippa the first, uh, and Herod Agrippa the first was the one who killed James, John's brother, back in Acts chapter 12. Uh, which makes her brother uh, Herod Agrippa II, and we're going to meet him in next week's passage. And Drusilla had a a reputation as a ravishingly youthful beauty. And Felix was not her first husband either. Uh, She was originally married to King Azizus of Emesia, which is in Syria. But when Felix met her, he was consumed by passion. And so he convinced her to leave that marriage and come to him. And, and all this by the time she was 19. So she was 19 at the time of this passage. Uh, and so when Paul comes to talk about self-control with this couple, I suspect there might have been a few awkward coughs in the room. Maybe a few red faces. And then after talking about righteousness and self-control, Paul finally comes to talk about the judgment that was to come. And he set them up well here, hasn't he? Uh, And it seems the message got through to some extent. Did you notice how Felix responded? As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid, afraid. And said, that's enough for now, you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Now it doesn't seem that there's a genuine repentance that happened there. Uh, We don't know what what exactly Felix did, but it doesn't seem that he, he came to any faith in Jesus. Uh, it's particularly given we see that for the next couple of years he's chasing a bribe from Paul. But I think it does remind us of the timelessness of this message. Our world is no less in need of hearing about faith in Jesus. Our world needs to hear about righteousness, about self-control, about the judgment to come. It's the message each one of us here needed to call us to repent and follow Jesus. I think there's a a temptation for us to water down the the message, to to leave those difficult parts out, to make it a a little bit more palatable. I mentioned last week the the church I visited when I was at college that were uh, appalled, the other churches in the area were appalled that that church wanted to teach sin in SRE and tried to have them stopped. They're trying to remove those unpalatable parts from the gospel, aren't they? But we need to stand firm. We need the gospel, all of the gospel, no matter how offensive it might be to the world. Because it's as we grapple with judgment that we encounter Jesus. Jesus who took the judgment in our place. As we grapple with our sin, we recognize the incredible price that Jesus has paid for our sake. It's as we see the cost that he bore that we see the wonder of the gift of forgiveness that he's given and the hope of heaven that is ours in him. What could be more relevant? What could be more relevant to this broken world than that forgiveness and hope made clear in the face of our sin? I want to encourage us like Paul, to keep holding out the gospel, all of the gospel, the tricky parts as well. 
to recognize that it's there we find our hope. And so we want to do that no matter how much it offends, no matter what it costs us is as we interact with the world. I'm going to pray for us now that we could do that, that we could hold on to that gospel and the hope it brings. Lord, I want to thank you for the chance to gather here tonight. I thank you for this passage. Uh, we thank you that despite uh, these hard times that Paul went through, that they do show us some wonderful truths. That though the world won't always treat us fairly, uh, that though, though we might hit these hard times, this discrimination, persecution, that there is a real hope that we're holding on to, a real hope that does make a difference to this world, a hope that changes people's eternities. Lord, where, where we might be embarrassed, where we might be tempted to, to shirk away from the more unpalatable parts, help us to hold them tightly. Help us to recognise that it's in that righteousness that we need that we recognise our failings, and recognize our need for Jesus. Help us to hold out the hope that we have to others. And Lord, as we do that, we pray that people would respond, that people would hear your truth and come to find that same hope. And we pray it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.